Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. All right, this morning we're looking at uh, chapter 11, the first uh, 16 verses. I won't read all of this. I'll just touch on the parts of it and then we'll eventually work our way through it. But the issue here is the men and women, the role of men and women in worship, in gender and worship is what I've entitled it. And so this section is dealing with the specific problems, the specific concerns which have arisen there. And we think that the Corinthians have written Paul a letter and we might speculate that in the letter that they've written, they've questioned Paul's own teaching. Maybe he said something to the Corinthians very similar to what he says to the Galatians that there is neither male nor female. Maybe that's what's troubling them. And as a result of their new freedom in Christ, they may have taken this too far and presumed that Christians are androgynous or they do not need to distinguish any difference at all Uh, between the sexes. And so maybe uh, gender-neutral attire or maybe gender-free leadership without distinctions attracted some of the Corinthian women who wanted to break free from the cultural convention. Now Paul approves of their new freedom to lead in prayer, to preach even, that may be the word here, prophecy in public worship. He does not criticize their exercising a leadership role. Certainly not here in this passage. But he is unhappy about the assumption that gender equality means gender sameness or gender interchangeability. So Paul gives us a formula for difference in unity. And so let's read from verse 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. So there's several issues in this section, uh, issues of worship, the role of men and women, uh, you know, but one of the, maybe the key issue, uh, how do we interpret scripture when it's referencing a very different culture? And clearly not all the cultural conventions Paul invokes applies to us today. And maybe they're not even understandable. Even though in this chapter Paul is telling the men and women how to dress when they speak, we're not quite sure, you know, uh, he's later going to, uh, in chapter 14, say, well, the women should be silent. Here he's saying, well, when they speak, here's the way they should dress. So clearly he's, uh, there, there is an issue here. 
At Ozark, you know, they, I think they misunderstood that they, they did not put this together correctly. They had a strict rule that women should not speak in chapel. And yet, I don't know if you're familiar with Mrs. Welshimer, who was the heiress of the Phillips Petroleum fortune. And she gave large amounts of money to Ozark and Cincinnati, I think many of our colleges. And of course, whenever she came to campus, <laughs> She spoke in chapel, and we all listened eagerly. In his in instructions here about head coverings, we really have no clear idea as to what the angels might have to do with uh, what this means. We can guess at it, and I'm going to take a guess. But Paul, is, it's a very specific letter, and so that's the issue here, that all of his letters are occasional letters to specific churches with specific problems and even, you know, there's a difference between what he says to Corinth and what he says to Ephesus because it's a very different social setting. But let me, let me state some clear conclusions from this section and then I'll move into talking about things that are less clear. I think we can uh, say that uh, every woman who prays or offers prophetic speech you know, the setting here, it's clearly public worship. And in fact, this whole passage is about public worship. And so the two Greek words here must mean in this context to lead in prayer and to articulate some sort of applied pastoral message. Some would say to preach. Some say that's what prophecy is here. But when women lead in worship, they should either wear a veil, and here we're very unsure what they're supposed to wear, a head covering, or there's some, some people say it has nothing to do with the covering, but the way they wear their hair, or to keep their hair up. And the idea here is that prostitutes may have worn their hair down without a head covering as a kind of sign, a kind of advertisement. But whatever it is, Paul wants the women and men to continue to abide by certain cultural standards. And the issue here is one of shame. You don't want to commit something shameful. And of course, shame itself is culturally specific, uh, especially in clothing and, and attire. But the point is, be respectable. Wear a veil or a hood, maybe like women are supposed to. We don't know what they were supposed to do. And men should not dress like women, and women should not dress like men. I think that's the, the big picture here. Now, what is the veil or the head covering? You know, what, the meaning of it, we, we don't know what it is, and it's not quite clear what the meaning. Uh, it could be some sort of cultural marker of unity indifference. That is, he's saying, okay, everybody, throughout this passage, he's describing men and women as equal but different. And so what is, in verse 10, if you look there, the authority which a woman possesses or that which, which someone else has over her? And again, you know, is it her husband? Well, this really isn't talking about men or husband and wives. In the Greek here, we're never quite sure if it's just men and women, husband and wives, but it looks like the context, it's just men and women. So that a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. 
And some suggest that a veil or hood may have been a sign of, that's the sign of empowerment to prophesy, which would be connected with the reference to angels. These empowered messengers covered themselves. This is the picture in Isaiah 6-2. In God's presence, they would cover themselves with something like wings, you know, the seraphim with six wings, with two wings, they covered their faces and they covered their feet and with two they were flying. Now whether Paul was endorsing the right of a woman prophet to choose her head covering, calling her to cover her head or validating her authority, uh, you know, we have many instances of this like Deborah to Barak or uh, Huldah to Josiah. Many women in the Old Testament, judges and women with authority. And it is clear that women were serving in this leadership capacity as prophets. We have this here in several places in the New Testament. And they were doing so with the Apostles' blessing. And the sign may be even a divinely given sign of authority. The angels, you know, communicated God's word to the prophets who in turn communicated to God's people, and that may be what the headgear is all about. And so we'll find this in later books and intertestamental pictures that women prophets were empowered by angels. The idea they, they were thought to have an authority over their own heads uh, in some way, which brings us to the next issue, and that is in, chat, in verse 3, which I did not read, but the issue of headship. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. In this verse, the relation between men and women is a correlate of the relation between Christ and God the Father. What is true of man, men and women relations is true of father-son relations in the Trinity. In this light, what does it mean that the man is the head of the woman or that God the Father is the head of the Christ, uh, the head of Christ? Is the father the boss or the husband the boss or the man the boss who does all the talking and the son Christ must remain silent? That doesn't seem quite right. In fact, that's uh, obviously Christ is connected with the word. In the chapters leading up to 1 Corinthians 11, Paul has been attempting to dispossess the Corinthian elite of a domineering, cruel, authoritarian treatment of the weak in regard to sex, finances, visiting pagan temples, and eating meat. And head here has unfortunate associations with just the very domination and authoritarianism Paul has been combating. The word is, is of course, a metaphor for topmost or what represents the whole. You know, Larry would refer to his cattle, he might refer to the head of cattle that he has. The head of a family is the one who represents its public face. The representative contact person who focuses its identity, but certainly does not absorb or assimilate its identity. So head may mean the woman reflects back to the man in a cultural sense. You know, the word doxa or reputation 
glory, it could be the reputation of the family reflects back on the head of the family. The glory of Christ reflects back on the Father. It may also mean that the word head is just the word for source, like the head of a river. The head of every man is Christ. Maybe it's referring, and maybe most likely referring, to Christ's role in creation. You know, this is John 1, 1 to 3, that he's the creator of all things. Christ is the head of every man as the creator because he is the source, the point of origin, the first man, Adam. Genesis describes male and female as bearing the image together, but it may be that Paul is making a distinction according to the two accounts of human creation of woman, where the woman is taken out of the side of man, that, that is, that he's the source from what the, which the woman comes. Just as Adam came from Christ, the creator of all things, so Eve was taken from Adam. What we can conclude is that men and women are interdependent. Woman came from man in Genesis, and men come from women in birth. And Paul says the one is not, you know, without the other. The one without the other is nothing. The one without the other in Genesis is not good, incomplete. So it's not in, there is a difference, but it's not an oppositional difference. But it's an identity through difference or through interdependence. They are from and through one another, Paul is saying. And the interdependence holds together through God. The two are held together in the Lord. The two are not one without one another, but they are one in and through the Lord. So three persons are involved in this relationship. The male, the female, and God, as with the Trinity. And that's this, the picture that Paul is painting. And the two are from and through one another, but all things, in verse 12, Paul says, are in and through God. And so the interdependence of the two is inclusive of their mutual dependence on God. But they are created by God, and we might say that the completion, and this of course is the story of salvation, the completion of male and female that Christ is the groom, the church is the bride, and the wedding feast of the Lamb is the completion of that male-female imaging. But even to begin with, our image is mediated to us, is through God, through our relationship with God, with one another. And that is the sense, I think, in which humankind has fallen, right? In some way, the image is marred. And certainly, we see this in Genesis, that the male-female relationship is marred. They're alienated. The woman, in some way, is made subject in a kind of cruel, authoritarian way. That's not the way it's supposed to be. That's the curse. And what happens then in redemption is an undoing of that curse, of that wrong system of authority, of that failed relationship. In this, Paul makes three comparisons. His third comparison, he steps back. And the bigger picture, he declares, the head of Christ is God. So not only do male-female relationships serve as an analogy of who God is, 
But who God is serves as the basis for our understanding of the image that we're in. That is, we understand God and we understand who we are together. And how we understand the Trinity will or it should relate to how we understand human gendered relations and vice versa. That our success even or our failure in relation, uh, the relation between the genders. And I don't mean just marriage here because Paul's not really talking simply about marriage. He's talking about church. But it's a testing ground for how well we understand God. If the male denigrates the female, is an authoritarian, is abusive, does this reflect well how we view the relation between the father and the son? That's what's at issue here, right? The point is that how we understand human personhood is derived from how we understand the person of God. Male, you know, we might misread this, and this has been done historically. We might misunderstand the Trinity, we might understand who, misunderstand who God is, and then we'll misunderstand male-female relationship. It may be that some read it as a male-female oppositional difference. And maybe we could read that back into the Trinity as a kind of tritheism, that the persons of the Trinity are separate. And of course, what you get in male-female would be a kind of dualism. Maybe in, you see in pagan religion, in, certainly in Chinese religion, yin and yang. The world is divided. The home is divided. This is certainly idolatry in the Old Testament. In the picture, it is the male idol. The idol is often a, a kind of phallic image. And the worshiper is pictured in a fee, as a female adulterer. It depicts an impossibility of relationship. And so Paul says here, woman is nothing apart from man. And man is nothing apart from woman. And it is this separation and alienation commonly portrayed in idolatry. That is, this is precisely what Christianity is overcoming, is that alienation that you find in paganism. And he's just talked about idolatry, right? He's just said the idol is nothing. So there's no such thing as the father, independent of the son, or in fact any member of the Trinity, apart from other members of the Trinity, so too there is no such thing as man apart from a woman and woman apart from man. Now, the, the other danger here is that, that we might reduce God to one thing, or we might reduce male-female to one thing. This is actually the mistake of the Eastern Church. Gregory of Nyssa talks about a kind of singular essence, a humanoid sort of essence, and male-female is put upon that. And you get a particular, particular view of the Trinity in the Eastern Church that it's a kind of apophatic, a kind of mysterious thing. So too the relationship between male and female. And so in this understanding, the world and creation are somehow unreal. Gender is unreal. That we're all of one essence. Maybe this describes where we are in the postmodern age, you know. That gender is just flexible. We can make of it whatever we want. That's a misunderstanding of who God is. That's a misunderstanding of who we are. 
Now in the recent evangelical controversy surrounding precisely this verse, verse 3, evangelicals have been so eager to say that woman is to be subordinate to man that they've said, well, this is true of the Trinity and that Christ is subordinate to the Father. Well, that's historically a heretical position of subordinationism, the eternal subordination of the Son to the Father. With traditional Trinitarian doctrine as a guide, that is that there is unity and there's difference, I think that we, get, we can arrive at a notion of maleness and femaleness. They're not separate principles. It's not the manifestation of a singular essence, nor is one subordinated to the other. I think these things just are ruled out because of who we know God is. That's Paul's correlate here. There is no such thing as one member of the Trinity uh, apart from relation to the others. There's no such thing as man apart from woman and woman apart from man, both in origin, that's what Paul's talking about, and then in the integrity of the continued relationship, whether married or single. Again, this is not an issue of marriage. It could be and certainly is, but it's just a matter of being human, right? The very notion of self-identity depends on how we relate to others. So male-female is a central part of our understanding and practice of salvation. We're failed as human beings. And we can say we're failed in our gendered relations. This is the first image of the fall of man, is the alienation between Adam and Eve, man and woman. And in salvation, we're restored, we're saved, we're brought to, back together in the kingdom. And this is what Paul wants the Corinthian church, he wants all churches to reflect this new valuation of what it means to be human, whether male or female. And so Paul insists that gender differences nurture mutual self-respect, not domination on one side or manipulation on the other. Difference in unity undermines competitive, the competitiveness and it serves then for an upbuilding of the body. And so the persons of the Trinity are neither independent, they're not subordinate. Male-female is neither independent, not subordinate. But we could say theirs is not an identity through an oppositional repression, a repression of the other or in a kind of obliteration of difference. I'm afraid that's the problem of just talking about uh, sameness. But to say that one is not without the other is to preserve the individual identity of each while positing each as internal to the other. And so the meaning of God's image in man, this is what it means. That he created them male and female in his image. It cannot be abstracted or removed from God's relational presence within the Trinity. That's what he's saying, that as I am, you know, that's reflected. And the created image, male-female, repeat, repeats the reality of the relation. I mean this quite literally, that God is then in that unity that we find between Christ and the church between man and woman, between male and female. In New Testament terms, the, the Trinity is open to human participation in and through how, you know, 
How do you love your how do you love God? Can you love God apart from the neighbor? John says, no, you cannot love God whom you have not seen and not love your neighbor whom you have seen. That is that our participation in the love of God is in and through human relationships. It's open. This is the picture in Romans 8 that we have in chapter 7, the alienated person. And then Romans 8, there is, we realize the fullness of participation in the Trinity in Christ. We cry, Abba, Father, by means of the Spirit. We cannot overcome alienation, I believe, within ourselves or with others apart from Christ. This relationship is built upon love, mutual regard, and our embodiedness, our gender, is the thing that tends to get in the way. So, in conclusion, I think there's progress to be made in how we understand the role of men and women, and I think even in how we understand God and how our understanding of the two things interact. And the church's failure here, maybe our personal failure, marks out the need to understand just how it is that we're in the image of God as men and women. So we might say the fall of mankind is a failure of gendered identity, but by this, this pertains to everything. It pertains to our understanding of God, our inner relationship even to ourselves, and certainly our relationship with other people. Just our capacity for relationship is tested and, and built up and uh, nourished in and through this relationship. And so the New Testament brings this out very sharply in that the final redemption is restored gendered relations. Christ is you know, groomed, the church is bride, the kingdom is a marriage feast. And the most abiding mystery, Paul says in Ephesians, is that a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife. And this is a great mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. Male-female unity is the vehicle for the unity, apparently, between Christ and the church. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.